Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Prime Minister has talked to the Premiers, and it looks like we are in for more restrictions during a second wave. Arizona has officially called their race for Joe Biden, officially giving him that state. Will we see any movement on the presidential race over the weekend? Should we do more to govern Facebook and other social media sites in the wake of misinformation regarding the U.S. election and COVID-19? And the Premier says LRT is not out of the question for Hamilton. I could see the smile behind Mayor Fred Eisenberger's mask right over the TV. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hey, it's Friday. You know what that means? Nothing, if you don't follow the protocol. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. Yeah, we made it. If you had known what's happening uh, just literally seconds before we go on the air, you would just think this is an absolute madhouse. But uh, kudos to uh, Will Erskine. Uh, Philip Anderson, JC, who else is down there? Murph, I don't know, still working at the plant. Uh, we literally had technical difficulties. I had made contact with the mothership. I had made contact with the mothership. I had talked to Alicia, Bill Kelly's producer. We were there, and then all of a sudden, dink. Out she goes, and, uh, you know, then you go to plan B, you try to get the phone line all established, and uh, literally, as Stevie Ray Vaughan was playing, and, you know, I think if, you're, uh, if your shoes are a little scraped, it's because we were banging the trees on the way up, but hey, we're flying, and that's all that matters, uh, and it is Friday. All right, that might be an indicator of how the show's going to go, so just hang on. You better keep your seatbelts on. We're not sure. We might we might be in, uh, in for some turbulence throughout the course of the day. All right, twelve thirteen nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as well. Feel free to jump into the conversation via the website. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at nine hundred CHML dot com. Phone lines are always open. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, meeting with the premiers again via phone last night or teleconference, however they do it, and uh, trying to talk about what we can do to try to uh, minimize the spread of COVID nineteen throughout the course of winter. Obviously. That is what's changed here. Uh, obviously, we're um, coming into the colder months. People are moving indoors. Uh, fatigue is set in. We have to ramp up what we're doing. Excuse me, what we're doing as far as protocol and 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 able to withstand the winter, which was very different, will be very different than what the summer uh, was. Uh, premiers again, all meeting with the PM. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and with us now, Michael. Thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you are too, Scott. Uh, Michael, uh, give us a, you know, the, this is your world. You, you've been a, a fly on the wall in these situations. What would this conversation have been like last night with all the premiers and the prime minister? And, you know, just as a citizen, it makes, I, th- I think, us feel better that knowing that these conversations are going on. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I was never a fly on the wall with something related to a global pandemic or a health pandemic. But I think the theory is basically the same, which is that you're right, and you just said it right at the tail end of your question. I think that most Canadians, no matter where they live in the country, are probably happy that the federal government and the provincial governments or the provincial premiers are speaking to one another. Not that you would expect otherwise, especially with something like this, but you also want to ensure that leaders are in constant communication with one another. So that part is is certainly fine, and that aspect is great because it allows the sharing of ideas, or you, or you basically can get some sort of an update in terms of how each province is handling things, aside from the active COVID-19 cases, the number of deaths, etc., which are obviously on record. You can also hear some of the strategies that they're planning or things that they're thinking, because, you know, not everything is public. Some things are kept private simply because, not to be nefarious or anything, but they just haven't decided if that's the route they want to take, or they're discussing things behind the scenes with their medical experts and advisors and trying to see what the best strategy is or what could be put in place as time goes along. And as you said, as we head into the winter months, 
where it gets colder. And again, if you read anything about the history of pandemics or different types of pandemics from COVID-19, generally speaking, other than the Spanish flu, everything tends to get worse in the winter. The virus just gets more aggressive at that point. So this means that obviously in Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and elsewhere, they all have to work on strategies to help their province and to help their residents in the province to protect them as best as possible. Now, obviously, we're hoping it doesn't get to the the point where numbers, you know, preclude and possibly would include, pardon me, another lockdown or something of that nature. That would be disastrous for people and for businesses, especially. Um, But again, these are things that are being discussed. All of that is perfectly fine, and I think that's what we would expect our leaders to do. The problem is, as we heard from Premier Ford of Ontario yesterday, is that there's now apparently some, let's just say, minor discussion or or a trial balloon was thrown out that the federal government could take the lead on everything. And I think that's where many of the provincial premiers would have a major issue, as Mr. Ford said yesterday. You know, it was interesting, uh, and, and again, how stories get turned one way or the other. I was watching a, a medical official say that, uh, right on TV today that they don't think that the federal government would have that capability because there's just no. too many things to look after at once. Uh, and, and again, I think that's why we have what we have as far as, you know, as much communication as we possibly can. That being said, the prime minister said just the other day, it's up to the premiers to do the right thing thing again in a land where we don't want mixed messaging i'm not sure what that meant uh that being said uh phones them last night and i guess in the end offers them more financial reassurance that they can uh, allow these businesses to close and 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 more uh more money is on the way i mean what do we interpret from this yeah, I mean, I don't exactly know what he meant by saying doing the right thing. I mean, there's there's a number of ways to interpret it, and all of them could be wrong. So I think what he's basically insinuating is a guess, and obviously I don't work for this government, and I don't support the federal government in terms of well, where I park my vote. But I would think that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is trying to suggest that doing the right thing means doing the right thing for the province, for your residents, for your neighborhoods, for your communities, and ensure that in each case, because each individual province, as we know, Scott, is different and will handle things differently based on the fact that COVID-19 is worse, say, in larger provinces such as Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta, and has been, at least, let's put it this way, the numbers have been much lower in terms of the population, you know, active case per person, so to speak. That basis has been a little bit lower in Atlantic Canada. And we know that obviously, the, you know, the population is larger in the first three provinces I mentioned than the Atlantic region, but everyone's handling it in a different fashion. Um, but yeah, I, I think that obviously the provinces will be pleased that more money is on the way if businesses have to be closed down or if stronger lockdown or near lockdown measures have to be put in place, no matter which province it is. It's just unfortunately the risk is by heading into that realm and we always knew there was a possibility. It's, it's a huge problem, I would say, again, for a lot of business owners as well. You know, some have suggested, and I'm just going back to older studies, and this, again, by older, I only mean a month or two ago, some were stating that 50 to 60% of all businesses in Canada didn't feel, based on the amount of money they were getting or the programs that were in place, the emergency relief measures, they didn't assume that they would be able to actually continue into early 2021 under these conditions if a second lockdown occurred. Now, the federal government, which has been obviously throwing money and spending money like water, some of it for legitimate reasons, of course, but others, you know, based on where the federal deficit is at, honestly, I don't think they're keeping a proper count anymore. When you hit numbers like $432 billion as a projected deficit for this year, and it will certainly be higher based on the programs and things that they put into place since that time. Um, you know, I, I think that it, it should give, at least if nothing else, Canadians and Canadian taxpayers a lot of pause because their money is being spent a long way and in ways that are maybe highly questionable. But on the other hand, we also know that if businesses are going to survive and people are going to survive, these emergency relief measures have to be kept in some fashion. So if you close down CERB, for example... 
then you have to place into something else. And we, I think most of us in the country now understand that because other countries are facing and doing the same thing. But I agree with the doctor very briefly that you mentioned, and I don't know which doctor it was, who said that Ottawa would not be able to take this whole thing over if push came to shove because of their other responsibilities. That's certainly true. Ottawa could not handle the entire pandemic in terms of spending, government measures, etc. There's just not enough people to go on the files, and there's not enough people with an awareness to run it properly. But let's be honest about it, and it's not nice to say, but I'll bring it up. Does anyone really want Justin Trudeau to have control of everything, absolutely everything, no matter what it is related to COVID-19 or anything for that matter? I just don't think he's trustworthy enough on that. And I don't know if necessarily any prime minister, including prime ministers I would have far more faith in, I don't even know if they could necessarily handle it. Plus, sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act directly state what federal and provincial responsibilities should be. And any time a government or a level of government oversteps its boundaries, it's heavily criticized and understandably so, because it's supposed to be delegated X and Y. That's how it's supposed to be done. When you create a, a category Z, which doesn't exist right now, that's where people get troubled, such as what happened with the FCM a number of years ago, if you remember, Scott, where the federal government got involved in the municipalities. That's not just a leap of one government level, that's a leap of two and you know, and I know that obviously Paul Martin and others tried to justify it, or and, and you know, and, and other liberals at the time. But at the same point, my God, that was a terrible precedent to set. And unfortunately, once that precedent is set, it can then be utilized in other ways. But again, I don't so, think the federal government is going to do it. So it's it's an interesting conversation, but I don't think we have to worry about it. So considering uh, this call that happened last night between the premiers and the prime minister and yep. the modeling that we've seen and just the, the numbers increasing across the country, uh, obviously Premier Doug Ford's press conference bumped back to 2.30 today from its normal 1 o'clock. What are you expecting uh, as a result of this phone call? What are you expecting to see not only from here in a uh, premier of Ontario but across the, the country? Well, based on what's been reported about the phone call, I think it'll just be a reiteration of what's already been discussed. I don't think there'll be any, anything new or novel. Ottawa is not doing anything different today than it did yesterday. So there's there's no point in saying we, we presuppose what could potentially happen because of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, because 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 has not occurred as of yet. In terms of the modeling, I think that's where the majority of questions will come into play, because as we saw, based on some of the models, you know, if the current trend continues for several more months, we could be looking at a scenario in Ontario anyway, where there are 6,000 plus active COVID-19 cases per day, rather than the peak which we just hit, which was just a little shade under 1,600. I think it was what, 1575, 1576? I'm not sitting in front of it, but I, I think it was about that. So I think that's where a lot of the questions will come into play from the media. Do you anticipate more lockdowns coming this weekend? Well, here's the thing. Certainly, I think they're going to have to, if the numbers keep going up, they're going to have to continue to tighten things to some degree. If we go into a lockdown mode of any, of any sort, past this red zone, say, that Toronto and Peel region are currently in, I think that would be deadly for the country, deadly for business, deadly for individuals. And yes, I know you shouldn't use that specific word associated with it, but it would be because it would cause an enormous amount of damage, certainly in the short term and also for the long term as well. That's why Premier Doug Ford is trying to basically dance around a full lockdown as much as he possibly can and keep saying that he doesn't want that for businesses or for anyone. And I think he's being genuine about it. No provincial premier would want to go that route. The prime minister of the country, quite frankly, would not want to go that route. It's, this, it's, the, it's the last and the worst case scenario that you want to avoid as much as you can. But if the numbers continue to incline at crazy rates and we're not able to control it, either by implementing more rapid testing measures or something of that effect, or ensuring that people just don't explode all at once, which I think is really unfortunately what's happened for the most part, where people, the minute they, they see a little dimmer, glimmer of light or the dawn, you know, the break of dawn is coming, they run out, they socialize, they go into these yeah. massive gatherings when everybody has said since March, don't do it. You know, maintain social and physical distancing, wear a mask, wash your hands, 
et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to go through the laundry list, but everyone knows what it is. When you start doing things differently from that model, which is there in place to control COVID-19, but when you put yourself into terrible situations, then if yes, of course, it's going to spread, not just in super spreader events, but in general as well. Mm. So, look, there's a lot of things at play right now. We have to hope that these, that whatever lockdown measures come in, that they're just sort of like lockdown light or near lockdown. Because if we ever reach that stage with, say, a curfew at night, which has occurred in parts of Europe like France and Germany and the UK, for example, if we reach that stage, which we're not quite in yet, or if our emergency rooms and our hospitals are just completely overloaded to the point where they have to start canceling important procedures for people, you know, if your heart, for your kidney, your lungs, whatever, that's where it becomes disastrous. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a good weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Let's head down to the United States. And Arizona has officially called uh, their race saying that uh, Joe Biden has won that state. Oddly enough, we're also seeing China. Uh, come out and uh, congratulate Biden, uh, one of the last to do so. I don't believe Russia has or Mexico for some reason. Uh, anyway, so uh, where is this all going as we head into a weekend? And also chats about pardoning. Can Donald Trump pardon himself? Let's bring in Michael Trogott, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine, Scott, and I hope your safety and uh, health is in good shape, too. So far, so good, uh, Michael. So um, will we hear some sort of confirmation or will this discussion debate move forward in regard to the presidential election? Will we get some closure this weekend? Well, uh, I mean, there are two different issues here, Scott. Uh, One of them is the completion of the vote tabulation and in each state, there's a, a board that will have to certify the results. <clears throat> that varies by uh, by state, and the final certifications won't uh, happen actually until early December. But there's also this question of a concession statement or a concession speech by Donald Trump, and we don't have any indication that he's currently willing to do that to acknowledge Joe Biden as the winner of the election. What does that do as far as process? Does that slow, uh, obviously it slows things down, it makes it more difficult, but does it, does this, uh, is it, does it compromise security in any way? Does it compromise the country in any way? Well, uh, again, there's, uh, there is a law, uh, in the United States that provides for the transition, including, uh, funding, access to government offices, uh, access to uh, intelligence briefings, and so on. And uh, the authority for that uh, resides in a small uh, federal agency, the General Services Administration. There's a person there who has a uh, political appointment, and that person seems to be reluctant to uh instigate the formal process of transition until the president makes his speech or until certification takes place that is historically contrary to the norm where uh, even in close elections like uh, 2000 the transition process started um relatively quickly uh even without a um uh, a formal outcome in the Electoral College, and then in that case, the Supreme Court decision. So we're behind schedule, or we're behind where we should be. Um, Joe Biden is an unusual candidate in, the, in that he he has a lot of government experience, including in the White House. There are parts of what he's doing to develop his team and to think about, uh, you know, who we might appoint to various positions without formal authorization. But he is a little bit in trouble in that until the transition is instigated, they can't go into federal agencies and begin to have conversations with people 
who currently hold these important positions and to talk about what they had been planning. So, uh, obviously, as you said, the final count, that doesn't come through till December, but concessions, another, uh, another story. We're seeing Arizona, uh, go and, 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 and now even places like China are now congratulating Biden. Although, obviously, the final count isn't till the final count is in. Um, it, it seems like there's less and less and less of an opportunity uh, for the president. So is this all, and obviously the question is why, so is this all about raising more funds between now and then uh, as much as they can for the Republican Party or or in, in regards to raising funds to support the January Senate race, which is going on in January? Is there a reason behind this? Well, I think it has to start, uh, Scott, uh, by thinking about the personality of Donald Trump mm-hmm. and how in his uh, upbringing, his conversations uh, with an influence of his father. But we certainly know why he's do- we know why he's doing this, Michael. But why is the Republican Party propping him up? Are they doing it because they can raise more funds? Uh, again, concerned about those Senate races. Uh, we, we know what his personality is like. At what point do they cut this off? Well, I think some of them, uh, for example, are concerned uh, about his his future endorsement capability, uh, and he will have some power still in the party because our parties are very loosely organized. They don't have a formal structure and uh, a permanent staff. So um, th- there will be a difference between uh, the influence and the, uh, that he can exert now and say after uh, January 20th. So they, I think they're just concerned about not crossing him individually. Hmm. There is a little concern about uh, the two Georgia Senate races in the runoffs in January uh, that has national consequences. But I think, for example, the other members of the Senate uh, or other members of the Republican Party aren't as concerned about that as as the two Republican candidates are. What about uh, moves that he can make between now and January? Uh, already fi- uh, fired his defense secretary. Is, is anybody concerned on the way out of Dodge he's going to burn the place down? Well, we don't know what the uh, operational definition of burning the place down is. But he is, the, he is the president of the United States. He has a lot of authority. And he has a great deal of discretion with regard to many senior appointments. You know, we have a civil service, as uh, Canada does, but we have maybe a larger number of uh, political appointees in our agencies. And he's doing a lot of shuffling uh, just in the last week which many people see as a way to even some scores about people who haven't been as loyal to him as he would have wanted. So is that the reasoning for, for example, unloading the defense secretary? I mean, why would you do that now? Again, you're looking at a country that's in transition. Defense secretary would be the last thing you would want uh, the world to see as a vulnerable position, no? Yes, uh, because... um, There is a history of foreign powers testing the United States when a new person assumes the presidency. Uh, You know, things that happen in the first weeks and months after the uh, after the person takes uh, hold of the office. Uh, Some people see, for example, uh, 9-11 is an example of that. There is currently uh, some Russian naval activity. Uh, in the areas around Alaska. So there will be, we expect that there will be testing. Um, It's not a good time not to have uh, an experienced person as Secretary of Defense. But the president thinks that Mark Esper wasn't loyal enough, uh, and he decided to replace him with a person who has some experience in intelligence, but almost no experience in the large federal agency that the Defense Department is. What about your thoughts on the fact that the president really hasn't, well, I guess he made a appearance in Arlington for 
uh, for memorials that were there. But other than that, hadn't been heard from other than Twitter uh, since Thursday. I mean, this is a, a leader that usually every hour they're quite active in some way getting in your face. What about the fact we haven't heard really anything from him other than the shots across Twitter? Well, I think it's disturbing at a certain level uh, in that he has had no public appearances uh, except on Veterans Day, a brief one, and no official statements. And, uh, you know, the the uh, press corps keeps track of his public schedule, and he has nothing listed on his public schedule for the last several days. So what's he doing? Well, I think he is probably... Uh, heavily invested in uh, strategizing for these court cases that he'd been filing, uh, unsuccessfully, I should add. But he he hasn't gotten to the point where he he's able to acknowledge that he's lost the election. And so um, there are um, ways in which he's strategizing about possible ways that he might still uh, stay in office, but of course they're diminishing by the hour. Uh, lots of uh, rumor floating around on who he will pardon between now and then, and whether he can pardon himself, uh, because many have talked about how once his presidency does come to an end, he might have some legal challenges ahead. Uh, your thoughts on all of that? Well, it's clear that he he does have a, uh, essentially unlimited uh, pardoning power. No president has ever pardoned uh, himself, uh, and um, he can he can only pardon himself if he chooses to go that route. Uh, for things that have happened in the past, he he can't uh, pardon himself uh, with regard to future litigation or or ways in which he might be held liable legally in the future, and of course. Um, he doesn't have the ability to pardon himself from state laws and uh, or state suits, and he has a number of suits that he's facing, some of them in New York uh, involving financial matters. There's a set of suits that involve his uh, personal liability or culpability with regard to a variety of um, issues raised by women who've had uh, interactions with him. So he will definitely be involved in the courts uh, after uh, he leaves office. And outside of uh, activities in the courts, he has a lot of loan obligations coming due in the next several months, hmm. which are another kind of liability. Do you, uh, many have talked about his legacy and what that will be. Uh, some have even suggested he may continue in politics. Um, I don't see that happening. I mean, if he can't face the music now, how is he going to face running for a lesser office or even for president again? What do you think his legacy is going to be? Where do you think this is going? Well, first of all, I, I, I would tend to agree with you about the prospects for his legacy. But it's also important that this is uh, uh, a very important period in determining what his legacy will be. You know, if he had been able to concede uh, defeat in the election, he probably would have uh, also received a lot of recognition for how he supported other Republican candidates and how well they did in the election. Uh, but the longer he holds out and creates this false na- narrative about fraud and uh, illegal ballots, uh, and he gets defeated in uh, court after court, this is all damaging him at the very end of his uh, service in office. And the longer this goes on, the more uh pain and and uh, suffering with regard to his uh, legacy will occur. What about the rest of the world and how they've responded to this? Uh, many of our allies, uh, well, I guess all now, have pretty much uh, uh, endorsed Biden and congratulated him for 
uh, for the results. Now we're hearing that, uh, that today China has also congratulated Biden. How significant is that? Well, I mean, what it really indicates is the more realistic uh, consideration of recent events that other countries are making compared to Donald Trump. I mean, they understand uh, what what the meaning of the vote tabulation is, even without uh, certification. And um, to the extent that all of the votes have been counted, or virtually all of the votes have been counted, then the prospect of anything being overturned is rapidly diminishing to zero. Um, they they want to acknowledge who the winner is and also to get in line for their dealings and negotiation with uh, uh, the new president. How does this change the world order in the sense that we saw it when the president took office, uh, w- was almost uh, ridiculing our allies and seemed more friendly towards our traditional enemies? Now that Biden is on board and we're seeing this response from allies, uh, is this a unifying force? Uh, does this change the direction things were going in? I think it'll certainly change things for uh, the direction things were going in because Donald Trump was uh, an American first president, and he uh, clearly indicated on on multiple occasions and with regard to multiple issues that he had no interest in international cooperation. And right from the start of the Biden administration, uh, we we will see the United States re-engage with a wide variety of partners and international organizations on a broad set of issues like climate change, for example. Is uh, is there a shelf life on this? Uh, are, is the world settling down? Is America settling down? Or is this still up in the air? I mean, obviously, it won't be official, as you mentioned, until December. But are people feeling calm about this now? Or are they still waiting for the other shoe to drop? Well... I, I would make the I would make the following distinction. Uh, I think that uh, Americans are coming to understand the outcome of the election and the inevitability of a Biden administration. But the Trump presidency and the campaign between Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden has ex- accentuated. Uh, a series of differences, cleavages almost, in American society Mm. that uh, Donald Trump uh, thought he could take advantage of by um, widening them, highlighting them, and that Joe Biden is going to have to uh, and and wants to deal with in terms of uniting Americans. That is not going to be a very easy task for Joe Biden, given the current state of public opinion and politics in the United States. But on the other hand, he needs to try to do that. Uh, can Americans, uh, or any of us for that matter, learn to agree to disagree again? It seems I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right, vice versa, one side against the other, left versus right, uh, extremism, divisiveness. Um, do you think in some way that this will uh, will will clear the path, you know, whether it's fake news? Will, will America have trust in its institutions again? Uh, I think that it's possible, and certainly that will be the goal, but this is not going to happen in the short term. Yeah, um, We're in a cert- situation in which uh, not only does one side disagree with the other side, uh, but they don't want to talk about the differences. Yeah, and, and that's really the problem with the contemporary, the state of contemporary society, Um that we have to learn to engage in conversation again. Good point. Michael Trogott has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, thanks. Good to chat, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Carmi Levy is with us, tech analyst, and we're talking about Facebook and Steve Bannon. And after we have seen what has happened with COVID-19 and the U.S. elections, uh, is enough being done in order to police this? Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. 
so great to be here, Scott. Uh, yep, you know, as, as good as can be expected working from the home office, but, uh, you know, clearly I'm not alone in this. We're all in this together. Absolutely, and it sounds like we may have to hunker down a little bit more uh, after this weekend. All right, so uh, let's talk about the Facebook situation first. Uh, obviously, Steve Bannon, former uh, right-hand person to uh, the president, uh, saying on a post, uh, Fauci and the FBI director should have their heads on pikes. Should that be enough to get someone kicked off a platform? Uh, absolutely, it should. Uh, you know, that is, that if you read the terms of use on any platform, they make it very clear that incitement to violence is uh, it's one of those black and white sort of cross a line uh, violations that will get not only the content removed, but your account deleted for good. Um, and, you know, it's good to see that the platforms themselves are finally starting to actually act on the terminology they have in those terms of use statements. For years, uh, they gave uh, individuals like Steve Bannon, who of course had and continue to have large audiences, significant free reign. They were able to kind of do and say as they wish, get away with it, um, and then can continue to use the, the, the platform tomorrow because there were no sanctions, which kind of makes you, know, you and me wonder, right? Why aren't ordinary people, um, you, know, why, you know, why are they subject to these rules? If I post something that is clearly in you know an incitement of violence uh, i would expect to have my post uh, sanctioned i would expect to have my accesses at least temporarily removed and i know many people who uh, for far uh, less egregious reasons have had their mm-hmm. account suspended uh, why do they get away with it why is it because they're in the public interest uh, they seem to have a looser implementation of the rules that isn't right isn't the way it should be and it's nice to see that we're finally starting to see some enforcement uh, which will hopefully level the playing field somewhat when we go online and, and maybe protect you and me from this kind of content going forward. Carmi, nothing new here. I mean, since the Internet was invented, people, uh, many people have been trying to regulate it. The vast majority said, no, leave it untouched, don't touch it. But we know traditional media, we cannot go on and say things that aren't true without being checked. So is it time for some sort of regulation? What happens? How do you police this? I'd be the last person to call for more government regulation. I mean, the last thing we need is more bureaucracy, more red tape, more sort of breaks in the system. Uh, you know, business wants to do business, doesn't want to be held back by unnecessarily government constraint. But I think it's fairly clear that the fact that the Internet space, the social media space has been completely unregulated, has allowed big tech to um, you know, run roughshod to get away with things that, quite frankly, no business should be allowed to get away with. And as a result, we are where we are right now. So, you know, it, it's fairly clear whenever government calls big tech into either Parliament Hill or Capitol Hill uh, that they know, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. They clearly have no concept of it. Um, you know, we, we joke about how tech inept they are. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is there's opportunity here for government to raise its game. Um, and I think we need better regulations to level the playing field to protect us from the worst excesses of big tech um, and to help us realize the benefits of this technology, because there are many uh, without necessarily being exposed to the risks of misinformation and abuse. Um, so, yeah, we, we need a better, better regulatory framework. Uh, we need it soon. And we need government to lead the dialogue on how we're going to get there in a way that balances the needs of technology companies, but more importantly, allows you and I to better take advantage of these platforms without falling victim to them. Has the pandemic, COVID-19, and the U.S. election just underscored the need for all of this? It certainly has. You know, the cracks were there beforehand, and we sort of saw them, for example, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal blew up in early 2018 on Facebook. Um, but no one really paid a whole lot of attention to it because it was just business as usual. So if you were, if you're one of those 87 million whose data was included, uh, in that, that, that process in that scandal, then, you know, maybe you, you, your eyebrows went up a little bit, but it didn't really change the way that you lived or worked or, you know, interacted with your friends and colleagues and networks. Um, but I think the pandemic has really shifted, uh, the, the, the focus somewhat. We rely on these technologies more so now than ever before to stay connected because we don't have the other forms of connection. Social media for some people is the internet. It is the way they connect with people in the outside world. It is the way they keep their businesses going. It's the way they stay employed. Um, and so, you know, you know, the, the fact that, that they are so subject to this kind of abuse, 
means that our lifelines are fatally flawed. Uh, and, and we now realize it. We don't have a choice but to use them. In other words, I can't just get rid of Facebook right mm. now uh, mm. because from my home office in my basement, some days it's the only way that I can get stuff done. Um, and so, you know, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I recognize that it's exposing me to unnecessary risk. But at the same time, I can't lead my digital life without it. And the pandemic has made that even more obvious. Uh, and it significantly raised the stakes and the temperature in the room. And again, uh, we'll talk about the movie The Social Dilemma in just a sec. But uh, again, a, a more reinforcement that we have to learn more about this. It's not, a, it's not a case of living without it. It's just learn what it's all about. Let's move to TikTok really quickly. Uh, we know the president's uh, fascination with TikTok. Uh, and, and such, and at one time called it a national security threat. I guess it stays for a while or for now. What's your feeling on this? Is it a national security threat? Well, I mean, you know, TikTok exposes its users to risks that it probably shouldn't. Uh, but, you know, we can say the same thing about Facebook. We can say the same thing about Twitter and Instagram and pretty much every other app that we have on our phone. Uh, TikTok, to a certain degree, is more aggressive in the types of data that it accesses and the, and the, the physical access of the hardware on your phone. Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that when I'm sharing with Facebook, I know I'm sharing it with an American company with TikTok. It's probably going back to China, my data, and mm. it's probably being shared with the, the Communist Party and the government there. So, you know, there are cert, sort of certain levels of risk that make me worry more when I use TikTok versus any other app. Um, but it isn't anything that we haven't been worried about previously. And quite frankly, um, you know, this is the price that we pay for the digital life, digital life that we lead. If you're really concerned about security and privacy and confidentiality, then you go into the settings on your phone and on the apps, including uh, TikTok, uh, and you lock them down. You do have control over that. Um, you know, so I think, you know, it, it, it allowed President Trump to score some political points during the campaign to show that he was getting tough on China a few months ago. But what's happening now clearly is he's lost interest. He's focused on a whole bunch of other things, including trying to prove that the election, that he actually won the election. He doesn't seem to care about TikTok anymore in many respects. Uh, it, it's almost like he, he it's just completely off of his radar. And so, you know, I didn't think that a shutdown was likely in August uh, when the specter first became, became obvious. Uh, and I don't think it's likely now. In fact, I think it's even less likely. Uh, I think this is an issue that will simply stay on the back burner uh, until after the new president is inaugurated in January. And at that, that point, I think saner heads will prevail. They'll negotiate some kind of uh, a deal that allows uh, TikTok to, to save face, that allows the U.S. government to save face, and allows the hundreds of billions of people in North America who use it, including my kids, uh, to uh, to you know to use it and uh, and and you know on a on a continued basis. I don't see a shutdown happening anytime soon, and quite frankly, I think the potential for that has shrunk significantly over the last couple of days. All right, let's talk about the movie The Social Dilemma. I finally got around to watching this on Netflix uh, during the pandemic and such, and it absolutely blew my mind. You know, I think with interviews that I've had with people like you and so on, you know, we all sort of knew this, but to see it laid out that way was truly fascinating. And as I said to you off air, I think this should be mandatory viewing for every kid out there and every adult who has a device, anybody. It should be like a driver's license. It should be because, you know, we, we install these apps on our phones and then we use them blindly. We don't really understand what's going on behind the scenes. We don't sort of get the deal that we make with these companies. And or how we're even part of the equation. We are part of the formula. We're part of the equation here. We are. I mean, the reason, you know, the reason Facebook is free is because we're not paying with our money. We're paying with ourselves. We are the products. And, 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 and ultimately, advertisers want to reach us. And Facebook, their goal, when you think about your, your, your feed, but you know your feed never ends. It's that never-ending uh, feed. Um, that is a feature designed to keep us using the app for as long as possible because the longer we use it, the more ads Facebook can serve up. That's how Facebook makes money. And not just serving up more ads, but making sure that they're directly targeted to us because advertisers will pay more for that. In other words, don't just sort of send out an ad and hope a bunch of people respond, but target it to exactly the things that interest me uh, based on the behaviors that I've exhibited on Facebook and beyond and on the web and on all the other apps on my phone that it can steal data from. 
So there's this artificial intelligence, machine learning-based algorithm running in the background that's always going, what's Carmi interested in? What has he done recently? Who is he friends with? What has he liked? What has he commented on? And then based on that, that will determine what I see. And what I see will be very different than what Scott will see or what any of our listeners will see. It's like a customized experience. All of this is happening in the background. We are literally being manipulated to within inches of our digital lives, yet no one is aware of that. We're not taking the time to do the homework, and you're absolutely right. Watch a documentary like this to at least understand what's going on and what role we play in it so that we can be a little bit more upfront about our participation and we can be a little bit more in control of our digital destiny. Otherwise, whatever happens to us, it's on us. And I, what, what I found fascinating in the way they framed exactly what you just said is, uh, for example, if we all look up in a dictionary or at Wikipedia for a certain word or a certain thing, we'll see the same definition. We'll see the same fact, the same truth. However, like you said, if you look up a certain issue on in your search engine, you're going to get a very different feed from somebody who's next to you or, or the person across the road or even a member of your own family. It's not like you're looking up a word in a dictionary and everyone is getting the same information. That's exactly it. And, it's, and you know, they didn't build these tools that, you know, to be insidious. They didn't build them to, yeah. to do something malevolent. They built them so that we would stay on them for as long as possible. Again, serve up more ads, make more money. This is like hundreds of billions of dollars, dollar business for each one of these tech giants. Um, so it isn't like they wanted to subvert the economy or they wanted to, to, to control an election. Uh, that, was, that was bad actors who were taking advantage of the way these tools were built to make that happen. Um, but, you know, that's the thing is, you know, technology is built with an ideal in mind, and then it gets co-opted and corrupted along the way. Um, and, and it isn't necessarily a negative if we're aware of what we're getting into yeah. before we get into it. And as long as we do that then we can take appropriate precautions, we can change our behaviors. But going in blindly and not realizing that maybe we should do additional checks that we shouldn't assume just because we saw it in our Facebook feed, that is the way it is. Um, If we know that, then we can adjust our behaviors and be a little bit better at this digital citizenship thing. But the way I look at it, most people aren't aware of that. And they just sort of, they, they take their Facebook feed, they take their Twitter feed as gospel. And we know that's wrong. Uh, you should watch it. Of course, The Social Dilemma. Carmi Levy, tech analyst with us. Carmi, as always, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Really appreciate being here, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's change gears here because we have uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger on the line from City of Hamilton, obviously. And yesterday uh, we were watching Premier Doug Ford in Hamilton giving his daily news conference. And I was hoping, uh, sitting here in my home office uh, doing the, the show from home, that someone would ask a question about an LRT. And, of course, they did. So let's bring Mayor Fred in now. Uh, Fred Eisenberger, Mayor of City of Hamilton, is with us. Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, yeah, Scott. I hope the same is for you. All right, and, and we'll try to get in a little COVID message at the end of this, but I wanted to get uh, your take on what the Premier said. Uh, unfortunately, everybody was wearing masks, so I couldn't see the expression on your face, but I would love to have seen it uh, as soon as he mentioned LRT. You should have had one of those see-through ones on there, Mayor. So what well, are your thoughts? Yeah, what do, yeah, I mean, he, he, so, he, he so, certainly... Go ahead. Okay. I mean, I, I, we've been working with the province and the premier and uh, and ministers, uh, you know, since they they made their cancellation. They have been uh, really really leaning in and getting to understand what this project is all about, and uh, and and getting a much much stronger appreciation of the value of this uh, project uh, going forward. You know, interestingly enough, out of the uh, out of the mouths of uh, Minister Phillips yesterday, he uh, he did a, a, a webinar or or. A, a, a Zoom meeting with uh, a number of folks in uh, Flamborough yesterday, and he was asked about LRT, and he said that uh, LRT is an important piece of infrastructure that uh, has very important economic benefits for Hamilton. It also has potentially, uh, you know, economic benefits uh, for the entire region, including places like Thunder Bay, where they make rail cars. And so, you know, the, uh, the, the, the message is getting through that this is not just about a rail line in Hamilton. This is about employment, not only here, but across the province. Uh, Bombardio, Bombardier vehicles are made at Thunder Bay. There's huge employment opportunities there in terms of rail cars that need to be made. Uh, there are components of uh, this, including trucks that actually can be made by a National Steel Car. 
I mean, there's so many elements that, that really speaks to economic growth and stimulus uh, attached to what LRT really is all about. So they felt uh, responsive, receptive, and um, you know what? We're, we're awaiting their final conclusion, but uh, I am confident they're, they're on board for high-order transit for sure, and I, I have no doubt it's ultimately going to be LRT. And, uh, and then we're going to be our, we are going to be looking at a different funding model. So the, uh, the question then becomes is, what does the federal government do? How much money are they prepared to put on the table? What does the private sector do? And, uh, and as you know, uh, you know, the city of Hamilton is always committed to dealing with the day-to-day operational costs as part of our contribution. So what we need to do is bring that partnership together, and the premier's committed to me that he's going to help do that. Well, that is good news all around. That is for sure. I, I'd like to spend more time on this, but obviously uh, I want to uh, just uh, bend you here a couple of seconds on on COVID. Uh, obviously, uh, everybody in a very precarious situation now. We're talking about the possibility of new restrictions. We're uh, waiting for the press conference to come up in a few minutes. What, what is your message to Hamiltonians this weekend? Listen, I mean, we are I mean, you know, in a very precarious, serious situation. And if you think back to where we were, you know, back in March when all this started, when we were basically getting this out of the blue. We didn't know what the virus was all about. We didn't have any preparations. We didn't have PPE. Uh, All the things that were going to be necessary for us to be able to manage this, we have all of that now. But the caseload that we're seeing now is higher than it was then. And so uh, that really screams for, you know, additional action, but not necessarily the kind of action we took in March as a complete shutdown, but uh, more balanced, restrictive, uh, you know, measures, masking, uh, you know, physical separation, staying within your own household, that can, if we do all of that, then we can continue to to function. Uh, We don't have to go to a complete lockdown, and we can keep the numbers down and not overtop our healthcare system. So I would say to our citizens, you know what, it's time to double up your efforts. Uh, Think back to what you were asked to do in March, April, May, June, uh, when there was a shutdown, that uh, you were asked to stay, stay isolated. Uh, if we're going to go shopping, that uh, you don't go out in twos, you go at a single person, or maybe order in, and uh, and then now today there'll be some some added restrictions on restaurants and gyms and, and so forth. So we need to we need we need to put those restrictions in place. But the good news is we don't need to necessarily do a lockdown if everybody can participate. And I would say that you know the lion's share of our population has done that, but there's been some lax social gathering. Some, uh, some uh, you know, families getting together, you know, started with the bubble, and that certainly give, got it, gave everybody a sense of comfort and, and, uh, and, and cer- certainly relaxation. And unfortunately, those, those social gatherings has led to more cases that spread into long-term care facilities, into gyms and restaurants, and we just can't have that. And so uh, we're going to have more restrictions, and if everybody does what they're asked to do, we, we're going we're gonna to flatten that curve. Fred Eisenberger is with us, mayor for the city of Hamilton, talking about everything from COVID to LRT. Man, we're stopped, but we're still moving forward. It's uh, an unbelievable time. Fred, thank you so much for the time. Be well, good luck, and uh, keep doing all the great work down at the city you guys are doing. We much appreciate it. Much appreciate it, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. 227 News on the way. We will then go live to Premier Doug Ford's daily news conference. It's all coming up. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.